Please rise for the reading of God's word from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Hear now God's word. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, really from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, right after the fall, God promises to send a Savior. They tell of his, these prophecies tell of his person, what he's going to be like. They tell of his work, what he's going to do. They promise his blessing and also warn of his judgment. But these are far more than the peaceful scenes of the the nativity. The coming of the Messiah, we're told, would change the entire world. Indeed, it would shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. Indeed, the text tells us it would shake all the nations. The context of Haggai Haggai is that Israel is returning from exile and have begun to rebuild the temple. There had been an expectation of a greater temple than Solomon's, but there was now disappointment over the current project. There had been uh, the Lord, but the Lord encourages His people in the face of that disappointment. Basically, He says, "Trust me, my word never fails. You do what I've called you to do, and I will do the rest." Even Herod's attempt to divert attention by building a glorious building didn't succeed. Jesus prophesied and surprised his disciples. Remember, as they looked upon Herod's temple and uh, all of its uh, grand display of beauty, one of the great wonders of the world, and they uh, were marveling at it, and Jesus surprised his disciples as they mistakenly looked at Herod's temple as a hopeful sign. And we tend to do that, right? We, we tend to measure things very differently than God does in both directions. So in Matthew 23, here's what Jesus tells his disciples as they're marveling. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see, do you not see all these things? Assuredly... You can count on it. I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That was astonishing. You see, the temple in the Old Testament always pointed to Christ, who was the desire of all nations. It was in Him that the nations would be blessed, and the full glory of the Lord would ultimately be revealed. In John chapter 2, we read, So the Jews answered and said to him, 
what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now keep in mind Herod's temple was in the background as he says this. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered uh, that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. All men, in all times and in all places, are confronted by the Messiah, the God-man, the mediator of the covenant. All human history revolves around this Messiah and his work. Every person is defined in terms of their relationship to this Messiah. Every person is shaken up one way or the other by his coming. And this is no less true for you and me. So I want you to listen very, very carefully today, particularly right now and even more clearly in the future. Your entire existence will be defined in terms of where you stand with Christ. Your entire existence. He is here right now to shake us up. And if you're not shaken up now, I promise you, you will be in the near future. God frequently shakes up men and nations. We have... All kinds of history recorded in the Bible. Over and over we see him shaking them up. Since arrogance and pride are one of man's chief sins, in fact, it was the root of the first sin uh, of Satan and man, and therefore we would expect God to go after it quite frequently. The Tower of Babel, the world in Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah, Pharaoh and his army, we could go on and on. As we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. In fact, there is only one kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that's the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 12, verses 27 and 28, it clearly reveals what God was speaking of in Haggai. He quotes from that. Once more, I shall not only, uh, once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In other words, do you, do you have it in perspective that the only thing that lasts are the things pertaining to the kingdom of God? That all the rest of this is going to go away? Is going to crumble? And if that's the case, how then should we live? For our God, it says, is a consuming fire. In Isaiah 40, we read, Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket. And are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. You've got to imagine Lebanon being covered with the cedars 
these massive trees, the cedars of Lebanon. He says, when God looks at that, it's not even sufficient to burn. Nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. Even the superpowers. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. This text in Haggai refers to the coming Messiah or to the Messianic reign. The Hebrew word translated as desire in this text could refer to a person, but it might also be referring to the Messianic age or the work of that person. In either case, we might find the language puzzling and perhaps even think that it is in contrast, if not contradiction, to the rest of Scripture. Isn't Christ the Messiah despised and rejected by all men? He was, John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. How then is He called the desire of all nations? Well, this morning I want to give you five, at least five ways that the Messiah is the desire of all nations. First, people have generally looked for a Savior. There's a general desire for a Savior. Try as they might, people know something is terribly wrong and that they, uh, with them and with the world and that, that both of those are in need of some kind of saving. Historically, people have been on the lookout for some great deliverer or Savior. We have many testimonies, even from pagan writers, which contain a kind of prophecy foreshadowing that some extraordinary person would come and perhaps bring a golden age. This idea had been passed down by tradition, but I believe it was originally derived from a divine source and then very early and then repeated Uh, that there was someone coming from really beginning in the book of Genesis. Though twisted by men, nevertheless, we would expect to see similar stories and expectations in every nation since all men derive from a single source, just like there are many so-called flood traditions. And so the desire of all nations is for some sort of salvation. The remnants of God's image remain in every fallen man. There remains a desire to be put right, though there is also an unwillingness to be put right on God's terms. Second, all mankind needs a Savior like Christ. The Bible tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Darkness covered the earth. Paul tells the Gentiles that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They found only vanity and frustration in their pursuits and their accomplishments. They had no support as they faced the troubles in life. I don't know about you, I think about this often. How do unbelievers go through this life? How do you face tragedy and crisis? I mean, it's, it's excruciating with hope. 
How do you do it without hope? If this means nothing, if we are simply molecules in motion, if we are just evolved matter that is headed back to oblivion, then not one single thing that happens in your life matters at all. Your tears are worthless. Your joys are worthless. They mean nothing. They're going to be over very soon. Paul said, if Christ didn't die, we above all men are to be most pitied. Basically, he's saying, that means we're wasting our time. Why are we here? But the opposite is true, too. If Christ did die, if Christ is who he says he is, and he's rejected, then that's who I pity. Their uneasiness, arising from guilt and death and futility, made men willing not only to offer in history thousands of rams and goats and rivers of oil, and even in many cases to sacrifice their firstborns. So what and why? Ephesians 4, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They couldn't find a remedy to remove the doubts and the fears of their consciences. The Lord Jesus Christ meets the condition they were in. And therefore, though they had no revelation of him, yet they were groping ignorantly after what he alone could impart. Therefore, he deserves to be called the desire of the nations. Just as a physician able and willing to cure all diseases would be the desire of all patients. 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. Third, He is the desire of all nations by being entirely attractive in Himself. In other words, all people would actually long after Him if they truly knew Him. He has every perfection in His person. All the loveliness of men and angels shrinks from a comparison with His attributes. How great is His beauty! Yes, He is altogether lovely. Do we value riches? Well, His riches are unsearchable. Do we admire friendship? Well, then He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Do we applaud kindness? Well, His love surpasses knowledge. He is perfect in every admirable attribute. The names of Christ. Consider, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. People were continually puzzled by the question, who is Jesus? He's such an incredible person. After Jesus pronounced that he forgave the sins of the paralytic, the scribes reasoned in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
After Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount, we read, And so it was when Jesus ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. After Jesus calmed the stormy sea, we read of the disciples. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? He is called the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Holy One, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, Lord God Almighty, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Word of Life, the Author and Finisher of our faith, our Advocate, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Dayspring from on high, the Lord over all, the Great I Am, the Son of God. The great shepherd of the sheep, the Messiah or the anointed one, the Savior, the chief cornerstone, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the righteous judge, the light of the world, the life of men, the head of the church, the great and morning star, the son of righteousness, the door, the vine, the word, the resurrection and the life. The horn of salvation, the alpha and the omega, the Lord of glory, the redeemer. And more. Every one of these names tells us something about his person or his work. And if all the nations knew of his true worth, surely, surely they would desire him and love him. Fourth, he is the desire of all nations by his having had admirers in every nation. Wherever believers have been found, they've all held the same opinions and attitudes about Jesus Christ. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He saw it and was glad. Job in the land of Uz said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Moses in Egypt esteemed the reproach of Christ. Wise men came from Persia and paid him homage Devout men from every nation under heaven came to the temple in Jerusalem and joined in the ceremonies and the sacrifices of which all those ceremonies and sacrifices from the Old Testament were pointing to him. And John heard his praise in the book of Revelation from a multitude which no man could number out of every nation and tribe and tongue. This universal gospel shakes up the nations. In Acts chapter 10, 34-36, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. And again, in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching at the Areopagus in Athens, as this crowd of pagans have assembled, those who worship the unknown God, Paul says this, And and he, that is God, made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so so that they should seek the Lord 
in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also of his offspring. Therefore, since we are, all of us, the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that is Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this. He's given assurance of this. To all by raising him from the dead. Indeed, men of every race, every language, and every age have in fact desired him. And fifth, he is the desire of all nations because in due time his value and worth will be known by all people. He is the salvation as Simeon prepared before the face of, it says, uh, prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. All kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. All nations shall call him blessed. Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and every tongue confess of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hear this description of the ultimate temple. The final version. We're the temple now, the church. And God is is building this temple and we're the living stones in that temple. But at its consummation in the New Jerusalem, here's how John describes it in, the, in, in Revelation 21. So the New Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it. There's no building. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So how does this desire of all nations look to you? Has he been revealed in you as the hope of glory? Is he all of your salvation and all of your desire? Can you count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus your Lord? Do you love the people who resemble him? 
Do you value the sacraments in which you can enjoy communion with him? Will it complete your happiness to be like him and see him as he is? Jesus Christ and him alone is the only one who can fully satisfy your desires. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, come and make your power known that by your protection we may be rescued from the dangers that beset us through our sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ be a redeemer to deliver us. Indeed, O Lord, you have shaken heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. Moreover, you have shaken the nations and set before all the world the desire of all nations. The nations belong to you, the silver and the gold is yours, and you have given the nations to Christ as his inheritance, and the ends of the earth as his possession. Stir up our hearts, O Lord, to prepare the paths for your only begotten Son, that we may worthily serve him with grateful hearts. For surely the glory of this latter temple is greater than the former, and by the coming of Christ you have given peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning as I was going over my sermon notes, I I ran across, uh, I looked looked in uh, a book I had uh, to see what others might have had to say about this passage. And I ran across this by Charles Spurgeon. And I thought it was appropriate to tie the sermon here as we prepare to go to the table So I just want to read this to you as he's commenting on this passage from Haggai. He says, The fact is, the world wants the Maker who made it to come in and put it to rights. It needs the Hercules that is to turn the stream right through the Aegean stable. It wants the Christ of God to turn the stream of his atoning sacrifice right through the whole earth to sweep away the whole filth of ages, and it never will be done unless he does it. He is the one, the true reformer, the true rectifier of all wrong, and in this respect, the desire of all nations. Oh, if the world could gather up all her right desire, if she could condense in one cry all her wild wishes, If all true lovers of mankind could condense their theories and extract the true wine of wisdom from them, it would just come to this. We want an incarnate God, and you have got the incarnate God. O nations, but ye know it not. Ye in the dark are groping after him and know not that he is there. He whom we love is such, a, such an one that he can never be matched by another. His rival could not be found amongst the sons of men. There is none like him. There is none like him amongst the angels of light. There is none that can stand in comparison with him. The desire, the one that ought to be desired, the most desirable of all the nations is Jesus Christ And it is the glory of the Christian church, which is the second temple, that Christ is in her, her head, her Lord. It is never her, that is the church, it is never her glory that she 
condescends to make an iniquitous union with the state. It is her glory that Christ is her sole king. It is her glory that he is her sole prophet, that he is her sole priest, and that he then gives to all his people to be kings and priests with him. Himself the center and source of all their glory and their power. Amen. Almighty God, you have blessed us with the gift of your only begotten Son, who took to himself our nature, born of a pure virgin, very God of very God, very man of very man, our Heavenly Father. How can we render sufficient praise for this gift of gifts? Your own dear Son, our Redeemer and Substitute, the Lamb of God. His self-denying and infinite love is beyond our comprehension. Herein is the wonder of wonders. He humbled himself for our sakes. He came below to raise us up. He was born like us, that we might become like him. Herein is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself as our ransom. Herein is wisdom. When we were undone, helpless and hopeless, he came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost, to shed his satisfying blood on our behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for us. O Lord, like the shepherds who were abiding in the fields, let us hear your good tidings of great joy and hearing. May we believe, rejoice, praise, and adore, and may our eyes be lifted up to a reconciled Father. Lord, let us embrace this Savior to our hearts, holding him with undying faith, delighting that he is ours and we are his. Teach us to humble ourselves before you and before men. Help us to know how to be servants of all and how to humble ourselves. Bless now our feast and our rest today, and may we rejoice tomorrow as we continue to celebrate our Lord's birth. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Amen. Amen. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen.